Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you will guide our time, that we'll be attentive to a wonderful, wonderful psalm, that this psalm will be built into us so that we carry it as part of us into these coming weeks back in Hebrews. I pray that you will equip us this morning to worship well, roundly, robustly, fully. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Psalm 95, please. Psalm 95, we are spending this morning dining on because it's going to prepare us for where we're going back in Hebrews in these next few weeks. The rest of chapter 3 in Hebrews and chapter 4 had many references to Psalm 95. So what seemed like it made a lot of sense would be that we sort of climb into this story in Psalm 95 so that it becomes something that we can use as a reference so that the Hebrews preacher, as he's referring to it, will know what he's talking about. One of the things I found about Psalm 95 is that it was used in early church liturgy. Liturgy is sort of ritual, um, religious instrument that God uses in the life of a church to teach. Um, It's more than just going through the motions. It's actually teaching something. And this Psalm 95 was used in early church liturgy. It's used currently in Anglican liturgy. It's used currently as well in synagogue worship. It's a very important and profound psalm. They're all important, but this one is profound in what it delivers over the course of the psalm. And I'm hoping that it's going to equip us to dine on Hebrews well. We'll give you kind of a map of what we're going to do in these next few minutes. We're going to break this psalm down in four pieces. The first piece is is just the first two verses. The second piece is in the next three, verses three through five. The third piece is just verse six. And the fourth piece, actually there are five pieces. Fourth piece is verse seven. And then the last part of it, which is probably the most where we're going to spend the most of our time, is the last part of verse 7 all the way through the rest of the psalm. Let's start at the beginning. I want to read through the psalm for the sake of context. And I know that we've been inundated with it this morning. It's been read as we've sung through our songs this morning. Our kids sort of illustrated it. And um, we're just going to saturate ourselves with it this, this morning. So I'm going to read fully through it, and then we're going to sort of break it down a few verses at a time and unpack the luggage in there. And then we're going to end with three um, action points or three responses, three things that we can consider as a people in response to this psalm. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, 
They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's start this first little section here, verses 1 and 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. There's some devices that are primarily our Greek writers in the New Testament use, but sometimes they're used in the Hebrew. Some devices they use for teaching, and one of them is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a, is a literary device that sort of accentuates an important point sort of as a central figure. There's a chiasm in these first two verses. Here's how it breaks down. Sing being the first part of this chiasm. Make a joyful noise being the second part. The centerpiece being come thankful. The fourth part being make a joyful noise yet again. And then coming back down, sing. It makes sort of a pyramid. Sing, make a joyful noise, be thankful, make a joyful noise, and sing. First of all, right in the beginning of these first couple of verses, we're going to see it again. This is the first invitation that starts with the word, O come, or the words, O come. That's the nature of appropriate and proper worship is that it is invitational. It is, this is called an invitatory psalm. It is inviting other people to come and sing, make a joyful noise, come thankful, make a joyful noise, and sing. One of the cool things about this chiasm, apart from setting apart thankful, it, it gets repetitive about some things, singing and making a joyful noise. It's presenting sort of an exhaustive psalmic expression. Exhaustive so much so that we could actually have children stand and sit here on a stage and act through the motions and the words and the movements, and it would be wholly and totally and completely appropriate. Make a joyful noise and sing is exhaustive, and we saw a little expression of that this morning. Not exhaustive as in tiresome, exhaustive as in amplified, as in varied, as in we can come up with all kinds of new ways to make an expression of gratitude back to our God. Chiasm makes singing and making a joyful noise exhaustive and repeated there. And right at the center of this chiasm, in this first invitation, it put thanksgiving at the center of singing and making a joyful noise. Central to good and robust and true worship is a heart of gratitude for our salvation. I want you to think about our salvation in terms of this for a moment. I want you to think for a moment that you're on death row. I've used this illustration a number of times, and until I find a better one, I'm going to just keep sticking with it because it's just a good one. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're on death row, and you're on death row not because of some sort of accident, not because of some sort of uh, pre-DNA uh, justice, injustice, but you're on death row because you committed a crime and you're supposed to be there. But imagine that you're on death row, and the day that you're supposed to walk down that green mile down to that chair, you're actually freed. And then someone else takes your place and walks that green mile in your place and takes your voltage and takes your chair. A large part of our worship is, should be fueled by this enjoyment of the fact that we were on death row. You can imagine that scenario. If you could imagine this person on death row is now freed from prison, 
freed from death row, is out having tacos, listening to music, driving their car around town. I don't know where tacos came from, but I'm just thinking the picture of freedom. Tacos dripping down your face. Like, man, why would you be possibly be down in the dumps? How could you possibly be down? How could you possibly have nothing to be thankful for when you think about it in terms of that? I was on death row. And not only was I freed, someone took my place. It wasn't some fluke. I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to take that voltage. But someone took that place and then now calls me to sing and make a joyful noise and make a joyful noise and sing and be thankful. Come to God with worship that at the center of it has a heart of gratitude and come to him with an audible expression, people. Come to him with an audible expression. I was speaking recently with some folks in our church, folks that are very near and dear to me, and I'm not gonna identify who they are. Folks that are especially near and dear to me about the audible nature nature of worship. And I realized as I'm talking with these folks that they would say that I'm not a singer. I don't sing. That's not the kind of, that's not my thing. And I'm realizing as I'm studying a psalm like this, realizing that would be like a human saying, I'm not much of a breather. And I realize some of us may not be able to carry a tune, but that's the beauty in saying, make a joyful noise. It gives some room for those who may not be able to carry a tune <laughs> to belt it out, make some audible expression of a God that's so worthy of some sort of audible thanks. You know the difference when you hear a kid that says, mom and dad, thank you for that. Or when you wonder, do they even care? And you ask him about it, of course I'm thankful. Why didn't you say so? Why wouldn't you say you're thankful if you are? That should be the heart of our worship where we are expressing our thanks. I was on death row. Your son took my place. And now I enjoy my taco. I enjoy my freedom. And I want to enjoy it remembering the one who took my place. That's the heart of good and true and robust worship. It is audible now, what he's done for us is worthy of thanks, and a shouted thank you wouldn't be out of order. Second part of this psalm, verses three through five, this gives some reasons for shouting, reasons for making a joyful noise, reasons for singing, reasons for being thankful. We've already said it right in that passage. He's the rock of our salvation. Our salvation alone is enough for good, solid, robust gratitude. But these next three verses give us some more good reasons to come thankful and to come making audible noise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. This word for could actually be translated truly. If we want to put it in sort of a, um, I don't know, maybe a Greenville version, we could say cuz, C-U-Z. I have it in my notes here. Cuz. Come, make a joyful noise, sing, be thankful, make a joyful noise and sing because the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. It's a great way to start that little section here. For truly, 
He has done all these things. He scooped the deepest crevice. The deepest little place, deepest little cavern, deepest little crevice on the face of the earth, he scooped it. He piled up and stacked the highest mountain. From the lowest to the highest, he's responsible. He filled the seas and he formed and shaped dry land. I thought about this contrast from the lowest to the highest is also another contrast from the wettest to the driest. From the lowest to the highest, I have little, little words or little signs in my Bible. From the lowest, I have a little depths of the earth. I have a little arrow going down. To the mountaintops, I have a little arrow going up. For the sea, I have little waves drawn in there. And for the land, I just drew some dirt. Every limit... He's responsible for. Other gods in this time, the time that this psalm was written, and we're going to get to context here in a moment. Other gods, little g gods, might have been assigned some sort of sovereignty over some section of creation, like Poseidon might have the sea, like Zeus might have the sky, like Gaia might have the earth. But our God, our true God, our true king over all of these things and all of, all of these little G gods that don't even really exist, he's the true God because he made every single one of them. He made every single one of them from the lowest to the highest, from the wettest to the driest. He's worthy of worship because he's creator. He made these things. And then the second invitation is in verse six. The first was in verse one. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Verse six is our next one. And it introduced, we're introduced with this word again. Oh, come. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. I keep inserting our God from the song, I think. Before the Lord, our maker. This is the second invitation introduced with oh, come. And there are three little elements here. Worship, bow down, and kneel. Like singing and shouting and making audible noises, these things are appropriate movements. And as I'm sitting here preaching it, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I have to tell you, I don't know why our corporate worship times don't reflect more of this. When I was a kid, I grew up in First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. And I remember sitting in worship service one time when there was someone that actually came in there and raised a hand while we were singing a hymn. And I started sweating. That's my background. I started sweating because you don't show any sort of outward expression of worship. There are times where I've been sitting right here on the front row with tears coming down my face where I want to go like this, yes! But my old baggage keeps me from doing it because I don't want to get into anybody else's worship. And I'm ashamed of myself as I'm sitting here preaching that. True and robust and full-hearted worship involves not only audible expression, but physical expression. Kneeling and bowing down. I watched our kids sit up in here and kneel. And I thought, man, we oftentimes when we're singing, we don't show any physical expression of the greatness of God. But I'm thankful our kids did this morning. Maybe the place to introduce it to us is in family worship. Men, maybe, maybe this will be a time where you can take your family and say, family, let's kneel right now as we pray to a great God. Maybe in small group, we can become to be acquainted with it more than in here. It won't seem so weird. It shouldn't be weird, but it is. 
It's not, but it is. It's not. It's appropriate. He's worthy of bowing down. He's worthy of kneeling. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, if I had us do that this morning, it'd just be weird. I hope and pray that as the Lord leads me to do that, that I will step out in it in this context. And I hope and pray that as the Lord leads you, men, or functional shepherds, moms, if you're single moms, or if you're spiritually single moms, that you will lead your children and your family to kneel to a God that's worthy. That our expression of worship would reflect these sort of things. Audible expression, physical expression, kneeling and bowing down. Now, here's the second group of, group of reasons introduced with the next cuz, the next four. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. A good reason to kneel and bow down to this God is because he is ours and because we are his. He's not some aloof God that has not made himself known to anyone, that has not taken anyone for his own, but he is actually our God, and we are his. Like a shepherd is dedicated to his sheep, and like sheep are attentive to the voice and movement of of their shepherd, so we are to be to this God. This morning, I pulled up a video that I'll show you a little clip of. Let's go ahead and play that video. That was a good place to stop with the old guy up front. There's so much I love about that video. I love that he feeds them. The video goes on for him. to He feeds them. I mean, they've got plenty of grass, but he gives them some grain. I love his joy in hearing them bleat. When he first calls to them, you saw him like, yes. I love the sound of my sheep listening to the sound of their shepherd. And man, they keyed in on his voice. I didn't know what he's saying, but he's not my shepherd. His sheep knew what he was saying, and his sheep knew he's saying, come and get it or something, but Kamir loves so much to love about that video. It's, I think it should be something that we consider as we worship. Wholehearted, robust worship enjoys the fact that he is ours and we are his. He is ours and we are his. Now, the last part of the psalm the end of verse 7 says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest now the invitation twice over this come O come becomes a warning. Come worship, come worship, make a joyful noise, sing, bow, kneel, but you better listen. The psalm goes a really different direction. It goes such a different direction that there are some scholars that believe that these are two separate psalms. There's some scholars that can't take the notion that in one psalm, one song, essentially, that there would be two different, so different messages. Doug Wilson, a guy that I read some, said about this psalm, he said it would be like a guy preaching a sermon at a wedding ceremony, a time of joy, come, inviting, come, let's enjoy this union, let's celebrate this wedding 
and in the sermon, dedicating about a third of it to warning about divorce. If you were at that wedding, you might even be a little uncomfortable where you're thinking, isn't this a time where we don't even consider the possibilities? Isn't this a time where we just enjoy what we're seeing right in front of us and don't consider what this thing could become? That's the direction this psalm goes. Because God saves, because God makes, because God forms, we should worship him, but we must listen to him. And the listening has to take place with that key word that seems inconsequential in this, in this passage in Psalm 95, but is used over and over again in Hebrews, the word today. The word today. True listening takes place today. Our nature, I don't know about yours. Actually, I do know about most of yours because I've been walking with you long enough. If I'm one of your shepherds, I do know you and I know myself. And I know this, my nature is to hear something and I'm gonna put quotes around it, to hear something and then to get on it tomorrow or later or to deal with it later. If this thing comes up again four or five or 10 times, then I may take action on it. But the point of this passage is hearing takes place today. The best thing you can do with conviction that's taking place in your heart today or now in this season is to act on that conviction today, to act on those issues and those movements, the things that he's showing you today while it's still today. For if you wait, if it's in your life like it is in mine, it decays it decays because your heart gets hard and you postpone it and you put it off and you wait and before long you've moved on and what you don't realize is you've been disobedient. Obedience takes place today. The message of this psalm is come worship for God is great but don't stop listening. Don't harden your hearts. Listen today. And the point, the reference here that he uses is don't do what our fathers did and they didn't get to enter his rest because they stopped listening today. Our fathers didn't enter his rest. He uses two different references here. Turn to Exodus chapter 17. And if you want to put a finger in the other one, it's Numbers chapter 14. Exodus chapter 17, I want you to see what he's referring to here, the psalmist. He's pointing back to this event in Exodus chapter 17. Let me read you the story, and then we're going to look at the numbers story. This is at the beginning of their wilderness experience. They've been led out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. By this point, manna has dropped from the sky, cloudy with a chance of manna. In chapter 17, here's where we pick up. They're thirsty. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped, camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. There's more going on than a request for water. A request for water in and of itself is not quarreling, but what else takes place 
makes up the quarreling. Asking God or asking God's leadership for something that you need, like water, is not a bad thing. But it's how they asked. Listen to what they say. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I wrote in my Bible next to that statement, how can he be if we're thirsty? How can he be if I have a need right here, right in this moment that's unmet? Is the Lord among us or not? That's the profound statement of the disposition of the people. Is he with us? Are not. The mud is still caked underneath our feet. Of course, it's not even mud because we walked across on dry ground. The pebbles are still stuck inside of our vibrant souls from walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. We saw Sinai quake. We saw the plagues. We saw these mighty acts of judgment. And we're asking the question, by this point, food has dropped from the sky. And by this point, It's got to be a shock to you that they're asking the question, is the Lord among us or not? This reference in this psalm points back to this event here at Massa and Meribah, but it points to something else in Numbers chapter 14. Turn there. Actually, look at beginning in in chapter 13. This little section in here, this little story is implied in this psalm. It takes a little work to get at this little section of the story because of the consequences of what happens where he says, they shall not enter my rest. It wasn't just the water issue that kept them from entering his rest. That was part of it. But this is the most profound sin of the wilderness experience right here that I'm about to read to you. It's not the golden calf. That was profound. This is the worst sinful thing that took place in the wilderness experience, what I'm about to read to you right now. And the gravity of what took place afterward, I hope hits you. Starting in verse 25, chapter 13. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. This is again at the beginning of the wilderness experience. This is just after leaving Sinai. And they're going to go to the promised land. At this point, there's no 40-year wandering. They're going to make a beeline to the promised land, and they're going to go take and eat. They're going to move into houses they didn't build and drink from cisterns they didn't dig. They're going to move into what God promised to them. So they send over some spies to check out the land, 12 of them, one from each tribe. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. This is the report of those spies. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It sure enough flows with milk and honey. 
and this is its fruit, carrying around this big thing of grapes or something. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and, and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, No, we're not. We're not able to go up against this people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we had gone out to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw there are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Jeff and Amy Wade. <laughs> Excuse me, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And then in chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Would that we had died in this, or, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our wee ones will become a prey Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. This little story here, this little account here is the most profound sin in the wilderness experience. It is the point where the nation of Israel disbelieves. It's the point where they lack trust in the God who delivered them from Egypt. It's the point where their fear of man is greater than their fear of God. And the consequences are grave. God's response to their sin is that he says, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? So he loathed that generation. That's what Psalm 95 says. He loathed that generation. That word loathe is used in our Bibles. It's used in various places where a person loathes, like Job loathing his life. I don't think it says this, but I think he may have loathed his wife. Loathable for sure. Loathe is used all over our Bibles, but it's only used in this reference of God in regards to this people in this moment where they disbelieve their God, where they stop trusting their God, where their fear of man, even tall basketball height men, is greater than their fear of their God. And God loathed them. And he swore audibly. Note this. He swore audibly. The same voice that said, let there be light. The same voice that dug the deepest crevice with a spoken fiat. The same voice that with a spoken decree piled up Everest. The same voice that said, see, you're going to be over here and land, you're going to be over here. He swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There were over 600,000 men at this point. 600,000 men in that generation. That's not counting the wives. 
are the nearly grown kids or 600,000 men he just pronounced death on. Have you ever heard the term a death nail? It's not death nail. Nail, N-A-I-L, it's not a death nail. That's the last nail in the coffin. Totally different statement. The death knell, K-N-E-L-L, is the sound that a bell makes when it's rung when somebody's died. And it's slow. Doom. You just hear it reverberate across a town or a village or a city square. Someone has died. Let that death knell ring. 600,000 men were pronounced to die because of that. And the next 40 years was not just 40 years of wandering just to kind of make them walk around for a long time. The next 40 years were spent waiting for that generation to die because they shall not enter his rest. What he said there in that moment, what the psalmist recalls is that this entire generation will die here in the wilderness. This entire generation will die. Hear that bell in the wilderness. They won't enter the land I promised to them. They won't drink from cisterns that I dug for them. They won't live in houses that were ultimately built for them. They won't drink from the fruit of vines planted by another for them. They will not enter my rest. It's a profound turn in this psalm. It's a profound and important turn in this psalm. Three reflections on this psalm. First, the consequences for not listening to God and despising his word and his ways are grave. The Hebrews preacher is going to import that into his book, which he did that we're going to be importing into this people in these next few weeks. The sin in the wilderness is no, sin, no different from the sin in the Hebrew context. And it's no different from your sin. When you disbelieve God, when you stop trusting him, when you stop listening to him, the consequences are grave. And it will cost you the promised land. Do you hear that? It will cost you the promised land. You will die in the wilderness shy of the promises, shy of the blessings. Ironically, in the wilderness, with the blessings in view. I'm dying over here, pining for that. Promised that. But I'm dying here because of unbelief, because of lack of trust, because of doubt, because of fear of man, you, after having a front row seat to seeing his greatness and his glory, will not be on the receiving end of that glory and that greatness and that strength in your final and most needy moment. That's the threat of Hebrews. And it's one that we need to hear, church. It's the one we need to hear. Or just rip Hebrews out of your Bible. And we're going to climb up in in these next few weeks, and I hope it hits us. We're getting a little wee taste of it right now. I hope it makes us swallow hard. Don't miss, too, in this passage that listening to God 
meant listening to frail and feeble, stuttering Moses. I want y'all to hear this. Don't miss that listening to God meant listening to frail and feeble, stuttering old. In this case, I'm about to read to you, angry Moses. Listen to this water account. This happened at the end of the Israel or the end of the wilderness experience. Very similar story, but a very different response by Moses. Listen to this. Just listen. It's in Numbers 20. If you're just a visible person, you got to see it. But I encourage you just listen to this. Listen to the difference. Now, there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses. This is 40 years later. And they said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? 40 years later, still grumbling, still complaining, stiff-necked. Why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. And look what he said this time. He said, Tell the rock. Last time it was strike the rock. But this time, Moses, I want you to... Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, and you can just hear this next statement dripping with anger. Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth, I'm telling you, he's seething right now. Listen to what he says. Hear now, you rebels. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Not only did he not do what God told him to do, he struck it twice. And then God, in a sweet act of grace and mercy, water comes pouring out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. But then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given to them. Moses, you're going to die on Nebo. You're not going to experience the promised land either. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. What I'm seeing right here is happening with Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth, who is God's spokesman in this context. I'm seeing and thinking about here 3,500 years later, and I don't see how things have changed a whole lot. God has still called people to lead, appointed people to lead in your life. And guess what? They're frail and feeble. And sometimes they'll hit the rock when they should talk to it. Sometimes they'll fail you, but God still called them to lead in your life. And it might be in the family level where wives, you've been called to follow a guy that oftentimes is a knucklehead, unless your home is very different from mine. Maybe it is. Maybe it's just mine. Where wives and kids, you've been called to follow a guy 
who's been placed at head of a household. And the same is true in a church. A couple of passages just to consider. Hebrews chapter 13, listen to this passage. Obey your leaders and submit to them for the keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. This passage would not be here in our New Testaments unless there were still leaders in your lives. The priesthood of the believer is not licensed to thumb your nose at God-appointed leadership and to grumble and complain and undermine and subvert Human nature is not any different now than it was 3,500 years ago. This comes natural for people, even God's people, but it shouldn't. God speaks through God-appointed leadership. And I'm gonna tell you right now, knowing how feeble I am, if I'm any, any example of that and knowing how feeble Scott Sutton is and knowing how feeble Brad Cardwell is, you got your work cut out for you, but you're still called to it. Knowing how feeble some of you jokers are in your homes, your families are called to follow you. You got your work cut out for your families, but you're still called to it. God is speaking to your family through that man or through that woman who may be the, the functional shepherd in that home. And God is speaking to you through frail, feeble, rock-striking men like Ben McGraw, Brad Cardwell, Scott Sutton. It's the nature of the work. It's the nature of the journey Priesthood of the believer has more to do with access to the throne room. There's a whole nation in the throne room now. It's not up yours, elder. Me and God, we got this thing going on, but I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm not gonna be accountable to you. That is some sort of weird Americanism, uh, democratic rationalism, cherry-picking approach to God's word that is not a reflection of our Bibles. And let me tell you something. My zeal right now, and my burden for this right now is not because I want to make things easy for me. It's because I want us to honor our God in the way that you follow your leadership. I want to honor God in the way that I follow these guys because I submit to their leadership as well. They speak into my life, I listen. I speak into their life, they listen. You speak into their life, my life, we listen. There's this weird thing going on in the faith right now that, I, again, I don't know if it's an American thing or a Western thing or a rationalism thing, this thing that says that faith is sort of this inward thing and this is the real stuff. And this outward expression where I'm walking with other people, where I'm hearing from God through other people, preachers, teachers given to the church, where I'm hearing from God through other people, shepherds giving, given to a family. That's all external and that's, dismissible, dispensable. Let me tell you something, that's not in our Bibles, people. That's not in our Bibles. That is a weird Western, I'm the center of the universe, I'm a special little snowflake teaching that is not in our Bibles. I'm accountable to you just like you are to me, just like we are to each other. And when we stop listening to each other, we've stopped listening to God. Can you understand that? Can you hear that? And I'm willing to walk through this with you this week if you're like, man, I'm struggling with that. I want to talk through that. I want to understand that more. We will make time to do that. We will open our Bibles. Watch what our reference is. Watch what our reference is. How are you standing where you're standing? Well, 
I'm standing there with this in my hand. So if you need to talk through this, hear, hear what I just said. If you stop listening to God's people and to God-appointed leadership, then you've stopped listening to God. Don't mistake what I just said. You've stopped listening to God. The second thing from this passage is that God will not be mocked. God doesn't just invite. The first two-thirds of this psalm don't just stand alone as come on, oh come, oh come, come get it. He also calls for and expects trust and belief and fidelity. And you've got to know that Jesus is a reflection of God's character here. I read this passage last week, Jude, Jude 5, and I'm going to read it again because I want you to hear it. We're going to be going here these next couple weeks. I want to remind you, Jude is reminding this, this audience, I haven't even researched who this letter was written to, likely the church and the dispersion. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the wilderness afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's the ones that died in the wilderness. The same Jesus that did that, that saved them, also destroyed those who did not believe. This a passage over in Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's helpful for me to consider this kind of Jesus because that's where the statement that Jesus wasn't nice comes from. And I would say it again this week because I think our version of nice does not confront, does not hold accountable, doesn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. Jesus did all those things. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Jesus called a woman caught in adultery that he kept from getting stoned. He told her, go and sin no more. He talked to a Samaritan woman by a well about how many husbands she's had and now who she has as a live-in. When I say Jesus wasn't nice, I'm not implying that he's mean. What I said then and what I'm saying now is Jesus is true. If you want to teach your children about what the nature of Jesus, just use a different word. Bunnies are nice. Jesus saves and he destroys. I want my children to know who the biblical Jesus is. Save bunnies for bunnies. I want my children to come into wisdom, which wisdom, the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. That is Jesus. I don't want them to fear God and then think Jesus is the bunny. I want them to fear all of it. And not fear as a run from, but fear as a run to. Like, I don't want to stray far from you, ever. I don't want to grow hard-hearted toward you. I want to listen to every word as if it's my very life, Jesus. That's the fear of the Lord I'm talking about. I understand, you know, I had a couple folks talk to me, and I don't, you know, nice. I know that in our context, nice means, you know, kind. We're all about using words well. I'm not trying to re-engineer the word nice. I'm recommending using a biblical language for who Jesus is and was and is. Nice does not confront, at least in my experience. I've had people say, you know, you're not nice to hold me accountable like that. 
My Bible says I'm actually loving in that. So maybe I'm not nice. Maybe I'm loving in that setting. Maybe you are when you confront another because nice doesn't expect. Nice certainly doesn't command. Nice doesn't call others to repentance. It's a whole lot easier not to, believe me. Nice does not want to offend anybody in any way ever. And I'm sitting there thinking, were there any nice prophets? A nice prophet? I mean, think about that for a minute. A nice prophet. Man, our prophets were strong. Should there be a nice pastor? It's not to imply he should be a mean pastor. Should there be a nice preacher? It's not to imply he's a mean preacher. Ideally, we can be true, though. We can be true as a reflection of our Savior, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who saved and destroys. Here, here are the present tense in that. Jude is in our New Testament. Who saved and destroys. It seems to me he's a whole lot easier to dismiss if we leave him nice. I think he's a lot easier to dismiss. Let's consider him true, and then we might swallow hard when we're supposed to. What y'all don't realize, this is something we're going to be looking at in these next few weeks, is there is a possibly a large portion, there's definitely a portion of the visible church who is not in the invisible church. Let me explain that. There is a portion of the church, likely even in this church, in the visible church, I'm seeing you, we can touch each other, you know, the visible church, who's not part of the eternal church that will spend eternity in glory. Our Bibles are full of stories of people who've walked away from the faith, apostates, they call them. People that may have had some sort of profound moment where they cried or where they had some emotional experience, where they prayed a prayer. But it turns out over the course of time, it was not a legitimate journey. But according to the sower of the seed in the soils, they might even bear some fruit. They might even grow up and you're like sprout up and there's green leaves. You're like, whoa, there's signs of life. But they don't go the distance because they stop listening and their hearts grow hard. My burden is for us as a church, for us to realize that. And for us to realize as I'm sitting here preaching that I'm saying to you, it could be me. Every time I've alluded to that as a preacher, I've had people say, man, that just alarmed me to hear that from my preacher. Because if my preacher is not sure about his eternal destiny, then how can I possibly be? I'm gonna tell you how I'm sure is because I'm clinging to him today. Because I'm running out of the fog to him today. Because I'm listening to him while it's still today. And I'm praying by his grace and his mercy that he will bind my wandering heart to thee so that I won't be part of that visible church that doesn't spend eternity with him as the invisible church. Now, I realize some of you, you struggle from day to day wondering, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? And just look at how your kids, do they do that toward you? Mom, am I in your family or am I not? I know I've been a bad boy today. Am I out, am I in, am I out, am I in? But they're still sitting at your table and they're still coming to you for everything and you're still putting your arms around them and you have this relationship and this conversation going on so they don't ever think, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? I don't want to get... I don't want to invite you into a place of thinking, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out? 
But I want you to swallow hard realizing there are people that will stop listening to God that will prove that they were never really even in the family. And my burden in calling you to this today is the same burden that the psalmist had in Psalm 95, which is the same burden of the Hebrews preacher. Don't harden your hearts and stop listening because our God will not be mocked. Our Jesus won't be mocked either. God the Son. He's true. He's true. He's not a chump. He's not a bunny. He's kind. But he's true. And he's holy. And he's just. I read this this week, and I thought, man, this is the Jesus that I want to put on display. Listen to this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Just here, sinner. You don't get to be rich. You don't, you're not a tax collector. That's like synonymous with sinner, coercion, and all these other tactics that they must have used to get rich. Zacchaeus, he's seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was a shorty. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. There's no image here of confrontation. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. He did it with others. Why wouldn't he do it here? It could have been just like it was with Peter, where Peter just sees what Jesus does and says, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Reckoning with the biblical Jesus is going to leave us in a place where there must be a transformed life. And if there's no effort at transformation, if there's no movement in transformation, if there's no movement in the direction of holiness and repentance of sin, I don't know if you've met Jesus or not. He's not going to be mocked. Scott and I spent the first couple of years here in Greenville visiting door-to-door south of I-30. We had a goal of visiting every home south of I-30. I don't know if we quite hit it, but we came pretty close. And we had hundreds of conversations with people. 
and almost without fail, there were very few occasions we got chased out of one dude's yard, had a Hummer. Remember that? People that have Hummers don't like Christians, I guess. <laughs> That's very funny. Caricature. But most, we had so many conversations, and the conversations we had with people were, were just heartbreaking. The conversations we had with people were, we were asking, are you part of a church home? Well, no, but uh, yeah, kind of. You know, I used to go to church over there, but I, had, I was saved here and I was baptized here. And we're like, well, are you part of a church? Are you walking with God's people? You know, you could say, import, you know, this passage. Have you grown hard-hearted and aren't listening anymore? I mean, we wouldn't say that. But that's another version of what kind of unfolded. Whether they ever came into a true relationship with him or not, I don't know. But apparently most of our context is either apostate or never knew him in the first place. And it's got to make you wonder, what in the world is going on in our context? Has the true biblical Jesus been presented in the first place? The one that calls for you to take up your cross? The one that calls for you to put your hand to the plow and not look back? the one that calls for a great cost of discipleship? It has to make you wonder. And you think about passages like this and you see lives transformed and realize that our God calls for life transformation. He expects fidelity. He expects faithfulness. And he expects it in prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, Rich young rulers, he calls for it. Teachers, engineers, bakers, candlestick makers, Pharisees. He calls for it, and he's not a chump. He's not a chump. The third thing, I really enjoyed this. This is probably the shortest of the three. The third thing from Psalm 95 is that it seems that true and robust worship in the newly built temple, in the newly built Jerusalem, which is, that's what I didn't share with you, is context. Psalm 95 was written for worship in the newly rebuilt temple, post-exile. Big picture. Exodus, led out of Egypt, wilderness wandering, go into the promised land, the judges, time of the judges, time of the kings, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, division, Israel and Judah. And then the entire nation goes into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. Just put a date on it, 700 or so, 6, 700 BC. The entire Jewish establishment is destroyed and they are ripped from their homes, ripped from their families, and dragged to Babylon. This is after all that when Nehemiah and Ezra lead people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, Nehemiah, and to rebuild the temple, Ezra. In the newly rebuilt temple, this psalm was written for that context, and it's an appropriate psalm if you think about it. It's come worship, bow down, Kneel, make a joyful noise, but let's not forget what just happened to us. Let's not forget what happened to our fathers who died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. 
and because of their faithfulness or faithlessness. And let's not forget maybe what's even too raw to speak of in this psalm. Let's not forget what our own fathers just did that resulted in us, in our rear view, having rubble for homes, rubble for temple, rubble for Jerusalem. And let's carry that sobriety into joyful worship. That makes for robust worship. When you realize not only the Israel story, all of it, but the human story. For us, let's keep Eden in view. Of course, I don't need Eden to be guilty, but it helps. It's a good visual. Let's bring that sobriety to worship. It is a hearty invitation, Psalm 95, but it is also a sober reminder that we are prone to a vicious cycle of getting in a bind, crying out for deliverance, being delivered by a good and gracious God, and then forgetting, growing hard-hearted, and creeping back into sin and disobedience, losing everything, and then crying out to God, calling out for deliverance, being delivered by a good and gracious God, and then forgetting and creeping back into sin and disobedience, losing everything, and crying out for deliverance, being delivered yet, yet again by a good and gracious God. It seems that true and hearty worship is rounded out by the sober reminder of the Israel story and the human story and your story that adds a sobriety to worship. You can hear it in the guy that writes the old hymn, May your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my sorry, wandering heart to thee. People, let me tell you something. When I confess to you my frailty in ministry, my frailty in faith, here in that confession, it's coupled with a prayer. Lord, may your, by your grace and your mercy, may it not be me a year from now. May it not be me a year from now that are telling each of you, talk to the hand. May it not be me a year from now who stepped out on my wife. May your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee until my last breath. That is a desperation that is appropriate of a bunch of sheep walking out of the fog. Some of you come by that natural, this frailty and this feebleness and this desperation for God. Don't lose that. That's a weird blessing. I'm jealous of it because there are others of us that forget about our need for him. There are others of us that take him for granted. Man, we could all do with a sober reminder of our propensities and our tendencies and our frailties. Man, good and hearty worship is going to be rounded out with this realization that we have a bad cycle and we need lots of grace and we need each other to be bound up in grace. We need each other when two, two are better than one, when one falls down, the other one's helping them up, boy. That's what life with the church is supposed to be. That's what walking with the people is supposed to be. I talked about that first point there of where we seem to be kind of separating this faith thing 
this internal thing from this external thing. When you separate the two of those things, there was an early church heresy. It's called Gnosticism. I'm going to tell you what that is. That's Gnosticism. When you have this thing, this sort of this internal perception of me and God, that's probably a product of good and honest things like asking God into your heart, like having a personal relationship with Jesus. When those replace the journey with a people, walking with the people in an accountable way, you've missed it. You've lost it. You've departed from what it means to walk with the people, singing week by week, making joyful noises, and reminding each other about Babylon, reminding each other about our Egyptian grumble, our, our wilderness grumblings, Reminding each other about our Meribahs and our Massas and our Kadishes. Man, we have a responsibility in each other's lives to do that. This psalm is so hearty, we could spend another few weeks on it. We're going to come back to it because it's referred to over and over and over again in chapters three and four of Hebrews. The Hebrews preacher says, man, that psalm is the goods And unfortunately, what the Hebrews preacher focuses a good portion on is the warning. It's not unfortunate, though. It's ordained because we forget. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder what we're doing here, who we're walking with, what this journey is about, and what's at stake. Let me pray. God, I hope that you make sense of this message. I hope that it finds a home in people's lives. I hope it finds purchase. I hope that small groups are able to talk through this. I hope that families are able to gnaw on this. I pray for families even this week, including my own, for a time where we kneel. time where we bow down, time where we audibly express our enjoyment of a God that's so great and so worthy. Lord, I pray too that we'll be mindful of the fours and the cousins, knowing and enjoying your creator role, all that you've created, your sovereignty over creation by nature of being creator. And Lord, too, I pray this week that we can enjoy seeing ourselves as little sheep that come out of the fog, little sheep that run out of the fog to a God that enjoys hearing us come. I pray that image will be part of our worship this week. And Lord, just as much I pray that the imagery of an entire generation dying in the wilderness and a desert being littered with gravestones will add a note of sobriety to our walk. Will add a note of seriousness to our involvement in each other's lives. Will add a note of desperation in our call to you and our need for each other and our willingness to be part of each other's lives. 
and our willingness to invite others to be part of our lives. I pray that you'll find us faithful, Lord. I pray that you won't find us nice. I pray that you will find us kind. And I pray that you will find us true. I pray that we will reflect the character of our God and your great son. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to take this supper, and we do this every week, and part of the reason that we do this every week is because it is a supper of fidelity. Um, you can think about it in your marriages. You don't say, you know, because I'm true to my spouse, we have a, an honest conversation twice a year. No, every time you're together, you exercise that honesty and you exercise that fidelity. And so it's real similar in the church. Every time we gather together, we're going to exercise honesty and we're going to exercise fidelity. So this morning, as we have listened to the word, and we know that we have heard God's breathed out direction um, for his church, um, we saw some expectations that God has. Uh, on us. And so as we take the supper, I want us to be honest about um, how we're walking. Um, as we pass out the elements, we're going to go through two songs because, and it's fitting. We want to give you all a little more time to confess your sins to the Lord, to ask for help where you need it, to thank him for where he has helped you. I was thinking as I was listening to the sermon that it says that discipline, um, at the moment it seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. And we think about being disciplined by God in, in circumstances, but I think he most often disciplines us through the word. I mean, he, he tells us where we're right and where we're wrong and how we need to move if we're not being true to him. So this morning we considered trust, belief, and fidelity. And that being said, as we take this supper, Everyone in here has something to confess. The point of taking the supper is each week isn't, okay, y'all get all your stuff straight. Get all your stuff together so that you can come and take the supper in a true way. But rather, it's be honest with the Lord as we take the supper, knowing that Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And because of that, we trust him and we trust his design more than we trust anything we can come up with ourselves. So spend some time in confessing, in confessing your sins to the Lord or confessing them to one another. James says where, where we confess, there's healing. Isn't that what you want? Healing from your sins? Is there anyone who doesn't want healing from their sins? This is a wonderful time for us to be true and honest with the Lord. In Mark 9, there's a man who needs healing for a loved one. And he, he, he trusts that the Lord can do that. And, and he goes to him. And in the, in the process of that healing taking place, and he gets this blessing from the Lord in that, he, he has this very honest prayer. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So just because you have unbelief in your life doesn't mean you're a non-believer. But rather, that's, that's the true and honest prayer of the saints is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So as we pass the elements and as we sing, consider your unbelief. Be honest with the Lord. Consider what kind of expectations he has on your life. What kind of fidelity, what kind of true living is he calling you to? Not just as works, but as, as faith, as the way that we express our faith as we walk with our God toward eternity. In Corinthians it says, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So two other things I don't want us to miss. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes as we take this supper. And we're also to, as we're confessing sins and being honest, be thankful. Spend some time in prayer thanking the Lord for the things that he's shown you. I mean, if you're hearing things in the sermon, you're like, man, the Lord showed me that and I'm trying to walk in that. Thank him for that because he disciplines those who he loves.